Hey, what's going on? Thanks for checking out the PBE podcast. Uh, we just want you to let, let you know that uh, September 29th, PBE Live, it's a free event. Definitely check it out. We're talking unconventional economics with David Ramsden Wood. We are doing Mars Geology from Magma Kim Research Institute. You have never heard anything like this. It is incredible what we're learning from Mars, and it's happening live in PBE podcast. And then me and Skips are going to end it with uh, with some classic exploration geology of the Permian Basin with a with a new geolo- an unfamiliar geologic model making predictions of where to go in the unconventional plays in the Permian Basin based on some really cool unique approaches to the basin. So we're going to have a lot of fun September 29th. Join the show. It's completely free. Look for the link on social media. Thanks. On you, Troy. All right, here we go. <laughs> Three. Three. Two. Two. two one. 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 Let's, Let's go! Paul Devine got involved. I'm digging it. Skips is back in the arches. What's up, man? Dude, not much, man. Beautiful weather. <laughs> it's way better than California because everything's on fire. But uh, but yeah, man. Yeah, yeah. it's 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 been crazy lately but yeah it's getting better it's man getting the sky better. the skies of california man look like armageddon in some of those pictures from san francisco i mean the fires are just insane yeah it's it, it's it, it was really bad there for a while luckily it wasn't as bad down here as it was up there but uh so yeah, i was still poor air quality right i was talking to stan about this and uh how structurally california with the san andreas fault and and with the methane the natural methane that's coming out of these big structures yeah and the idea that when you have some friction in the subsurface it can easily cause electrical spark in these fractures so if you have mm-hmm. methane that's naturally being released and you have these small movements that we know California is constantly kind of moving and shuffling, yeah. you can have an earthquake. There was an earthquake last week. It like shook the house. It was oh, pretty crazy. Shit. Yeah, it was wow. a 4.7 in, in LA. Yeah. The epicenter was in LA? Yeah, this, uh, San Gabriel. San Gabriel? Something San like Gabriel. That. So just uh, San, yeah. uh, San Fernando Valley kind of up there. At yeah. The, oh, yeah, dude. but... But yeah, craziness, craziness. I, I mean, I didn't even think about that, but I mean, I, that's not really a surprise, but yeah. Yeah. Something it's dude. Anyway, California's going crazy. You're still alive. California's You're still killing it. We're still alive. <laughs> Luckily, the good news is we have good news today <laughs> <laughs> and that's going to be going into what we worked with uh, Paul on Paul Devine. And it was, it was an awesome, awesome presentation. The way he broke it down, the way he simplified it, even for our non- you know, technical or non-engineering brains to understand for, for geologists. I, that's what I would say. <laughs> I and it, it was awesome. It was awesome. I agree, sir. Welcome to the show. Thanks for, for getting on here. Hey, thanks guys. I mean, I think I've said, I never would have expected to be on a podcast and here I am. <laughs> so thank you guys very much. Wow. Yeah. I mean, and I'm a geologist too. So if, if that all works, um, this, you know, for you guys, it's because I think like a geologist and so do you. So mm-hmm. that's great. Yeah. We definitely delivered, I think a very good show, a good quality thinking, thoughtful show. And, uh, and so Paul, what did you get from the, all this as we broke it down and got through it all? What, uh, what excited you the most thinking back on this last hour and a half? Well, actually, I'm enthusiastic actually for the future of doing what I'm doing because, you know, there are people out there that maybe are going to be able to see the value in this. You know, I mean, if you guys see it when it's presented, 
carefully in a structured way that people might just want to jump on board and um you know again it, it uh, it's something that just needs to be investigated i mean my motto at resource analytics is experiment and explore and that's what i try to do with data first models based on first principles whatever it is uh, um it's you know it's taking data and experimenting with it and exploring it. So, I mean, I, I hope people will just be interested in, in that process. I think they are, man. Skips, what'd you get? Dude, I, I really liked the breakdown of uh, the way that you were evaluating the reservoirs, especially breaking it down and, and kind of every piece and explaining the importance of it. For example, you know, prop and volume and what, what the benefits of using that versus a fluid volume or, you know, depending on where you are, you know, what parameters need to change as far as, you know, these base and wide evaluations to find these anomalous quote unquote sweet spots. Uh, I just thought overall it was just, it was great. Yeah, dude, I, there was so much in there that was, that was turning these wheels as, yeah. uh, as he was explaining that. But I, I totally agree. The, the kind of the fundamental approach, first principle, ideas that are being put together to correlate and make predictions about what to expect if you were going to, in your example, and you, and you said a company made money on this, what you expect to get out of this investment, that is mm -hmm. incredibly powerful. But it also highlighted the reality of where we are today in this industry. And that's the fact that there's not new money coming in right now. And that even with an amazing tool that Reservoir Analytics has created and the way you approach a problem and you can make that calculation and make that prediction, it still is not getting that investment community excited yet to see, okay, let's if that's what it's going to look like, then we can make this approach financially and we can make a business out of this and make it a win. And that goes in full circle for me with your information theory. When you talked about how you start breaking down a problem based on just data and anomalies, when you find anomalies, which is the sweet spot in an unconventional reservoir, it's anomalous to find that sweet spot. Well, the anomaly in our ideas to just the fundamentals of why the reservoir is even there. I mean, the fund, the, we, we are readdressing and reevaluating so much in the concepts of fundamental geology, like where does oil and gas actually come from now that we know kerogen is a universal substance and not just a derivative product of life. That is so such a huge idea that maybe we can see in the near future some different ways of approaching this unconventional reservoir and we can see this drastic increase and if we had that today we would have investors lined up out the door ready to make a prediction on what you do professionally and how you make those predictions in these eors because now you see this uptick in performance an incredibly accurate way of making predictions of how this well is going to perform and and we're de-risking the future we're de-risking the investment for the for these investors and we're gaining that respect again in this industry and right now it's just that time we got to wait and gain that respect back but when it comes back it's game effing on yeah let's hope so let's hope so that would be fantastic <laughs> paul divine it is the conception part of the show sir and uh 
you know, it's post COVID-19 and at, the reality is that we're, we're starting to meet people 100% digitally and we've never met in person and that's okay. I see your comments on LinkedIn, get a perspective of kind of where you're at or your thoughts. And then we get to do it like this digitally where we get to actually meet. And so the conception part of the show is simply just how did it all start for you? Where did it begin? You got a geology degree, that whole thing and into young professional career. How does that story go? Oh, wow. Well, you know, I guess uh, I've been doing this for 40 years. Well, I guess I got my uh, undergrad degree in geology in 1975. So wow, plate tectonic revolution. It was, it was at the time. I can hardly remember whatever I learned back then. But uh, I mean, I was, uh, I grew up on the East Coast of Virginia. I was a surfer. So I was always interested in beaches. Um, When I was uh, in 11th grade, my dad, my dad was a doctor and he, he subscribed to Scientific American and they had a project in there for a, a science project. And I built a wave tank in my garage and studied the effects of waves on beaches. I uh, took that science project to um, the Virginia Junior Academy of Science and won third place. <laughs> so let's I go. Guess- I know. Isn't that amazing? I think I still have a little metal in a box somewhere that that basically has a microscope on it and it says science. (laughs) And how old were you when that happened? Well, 11th grade. So I don't know what age that was. 16, 15, 16, something like that. Wow. So I I went to university, um, you know, always had an interest in math and science. And uh, I thought I'd be a physics major, but... uh, it was over my head and I found geology there. Um, I, I did a uh, bachelor's uh, thesis, bachelor of science thesis on the effects of waves on beaches down at Cape Hatteras and wow. did field work and had a great experience doing that. Um, so that was my undergrad. But when I got out, the one thing they didn't tell you is, well, what the hell does a geologist do for a living anyway? You know, <laughs> and uh, turned out I, I have relatives that live in Wyoming. And so I came out oh, to man. Wyoming and uh, just hunted for a job, got a job working for this little uh, company, Century Geophysical Company, and spent a year logging coal and uranium uh, boreholes for coal and uranium exploration. It was a great job. I mean, I was just out of college. I was, uh, you know, free and easy. I had an incredible suburban four-wheel drive that was, you know, the most powerful vehicle I had ever seen. I kept my cross-country skis in the truck the whole year. I always had a place to go skiing. And, and it was a great job. It's like <laughs> it, take a guy out of college, a kid out of college, and you know, you do a job like that and you learn there is no problem you can't solve if you just put your mind to it. You know, even in the field with whatever limited tools you have, you can get the job done. So that was really great, actually. Wow. Um, How were they finding coal and uranium? What were they doing? The the boreholes? Yeah. So you drill a bore, you know, I guess uh, I'm not sure what the, the uh, preliminary exploration uh was to get to a specific area, but um, you went out and they just had a small Gardner Denver 
a drilling rig, wow. you know, maybe manned by two mm-hmm. people and they would punch down, you know, 10 holes a day and you would just follow them and uh, log them. If it's uranium, pretty much you had a SP and a gamma ray. Oh, if it wow. was coal, you had a SP, a gamma ray and a density log. So then that was basically it. Um, I logged the Wyodak coal outside of um, Gillette, Wyoming. And that coal seam is 150 feet thick. I thought the equipment was broken. (laughs) It's like, well, it's not working. Uh, Until I drove over to the edge of the open pit mine and looked at the seam itself was, you know, it's like, oh my God, look at this. So just a really incredible learning experience doing that. That is, man. That sounds really cool. I was going to say, so you're using SP, gamma, and then density, right? Huh? Uh, for coal. What was, yeah, for coal. What was the significance of the uranium in, in the study? Uh, two different things. Exploration for uranium, they were looking for roll fronts. So that would oh, be a okay. completely different project. So I would go out to uh, Bags, Wyoming, where they were doing exploration for uranium and just basically go out there with just a gamma ray and an SP. And oh, so, that's awesome. Yeah. So they would look for the sands in the SP and then they would look for the um, oxidized uranium in the um, gamma ray. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I, I started out logging in my career and here I am in the end analyzing well logs. So it's kind of a complete circle. I, I had no idea I was gonna <laughs> I was gonna make that tour actually. <laughs> so anyway, after Century Geophysical, I did that for a year. You know, if they would have recognized my talents and promoted me to supervisor, I probably would have stayed a little longer, but um I waited until that promotion got past me and then decided it was time to go to grad school. So I decided I wanted to go back to coastal geomorphology, went to the University of Texas in Austin because they had a marine science institute down at Port Aransas. Um, Best decision I ever made. I mean, Austin school, the people, um, the town. Mm-hmm. Everything was incredible there. So I think, you know, I took uh, three years to get a master's, but who wanted to leave Austin, right? <laughs> <laughs> and then in the end, I didn't actually do coastal geomorphology for a thesis. I did uh, ancient coastline, studied the Point Lookout sandstone on the Grand Hogback, the west side of the san juan basin just west of farmington new mexico Whoa. So, oh it was great it was great published a paper in 1990 i think um in the apg bulletin on that still a very popular paper <laughs> man that's awesome so there's a hog back on the west side or go ahead yeah oh, no, i was gonna say i can imagine i mean anyone who's you know doing any preliminary research on the san juan basin something like that would be crucial I mean, to understanding like what's actually going on in that time frame. Yeah, no, it was uh, it was incredible. Um, I think I I believe I changed the paradigm on what happens when you essentially get stratigraphic rise in a high stand systems track. Um, basically, recognizing a, a regressive transgressive 
depositional couplet and all the different facies that went with that and was able to see that pattern repeated um, in the outcrop and then even carried the work into the subsurface, which was great because that thesis essentially then got me my first professional job as a geologist in 1980 with Shell in Houston. And wow. they were doing they were doing basin centered gas at the time. Do you remember that term? So basin centered gas, sort of uh, in the San Juan, uh, in the San Juan basin. Yeah, big gas play. Yeah, yeah, yeah right. The Blanco gas field. Yeah, I was gonna say, were did Shell drill any of those pinnet wells in the Fruitland, the Fruitland coal? You know, I stayed there only two years. Coal bed methane was really not a thing. And we were using the San Juan Basin as an analog for exploration in the Albuquerque Basin, really, is what that okay. was. What? So, yeah, the Albuquerque Basin was great. We drilled some deep, deep wells there. Wow. Um, you know, I mean, I was, you know, junior geologist right out of school. So there's a lot I didn't know at the time. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> But, you know, the stratigraphy I had done, basically taking a lithophases-based concept of the, you know, in pre-1980 and turning it into a chronostratigraphic concept, that made a huge difference in how um, Shell started looking at the play. So, I think it was, you know, valuable experience. Oh, man, it's major. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, what's interesting to think about is... Talk to me about the geology of chronostratigraphic chart. What you're saying is stratigraphy is laid down and you're tying that to sea level rise and fall, but then there's a compressive. There's some kind of structural event that creates the hog back, and that still has a stratigraphic relationship with sea level rise and fall through geologic time, right? Right. Well, at the time, if you go back to some of the literature in the San Juan Basin, I remember a famous paper, Facet and Hines. It was a USGS professional paper. And basically, they correlate the the uh, lithophases. So basically, you're correlating the sands, and they're sort of rising up. You're correlating the coals behind it. You have the marine shale underneath. And you're basically correlating the, face, the lithophases. Time stratigraphy or chronostratigraphy, and this was happening at the same time as sequence stratigraphy was being developed in uh, the seismic world. But the geology world hadn't really, I don't think, started to use this. So typically in a, in a uh, stratigraphic framework, somebody doing a basin study, they would hang the, their section, correlation section in the basin on the uh, uh, formation boundary between the Point Lookout sandstone below and the Menifee continental section above. Well, that's a time transgressive surface. And so what you want to do is recognize that the timelines are flat and the lithophases cross those timelines. And so when you package the rock in that time stratigraphic uh, framework, you get a completely different mm. understanding of what, what happens in the depositional process. And that stratigraphic rise then produces a series of stratigraphic traps of sure. the sh- sandstones into the continental shales, which um, I just don't think people were doing at the time. So I was going to, was, were you guys, uh, 
making any correlations with palynology or or any kind of paleontology and saying, hey, we have similar like spore specimens and and both of these shales or in both of these, you know, like you said, these backstepping transgressive systems tracks that we see. Uh, yeah, biostratigraphy certainly could be a significant part of it. I never did any of that. Okay. I don't recall anybody in a team I was working on doing any of that, but I wouldn't pretend to speak for shell yeah. and say they weren't doing biostratigraphy because i'm sure they were somewhere yeah somewhere but, yeah somewhere so somewhere we, <laughs> somewhere somewhere but we weren't we weren't doing that specifically in the san juan basin or um in, in the albuquerque uh, in the albuquerque basin yeah. no what uh what we talked about setting up for this show is really interesting to me and that's it comes back to it's a term that i forgot again and i don't have my notes are sitting right over there but i didn't do that before i got this microphone going uh it's it's um information theory did i get that you got right it. yes you did information Look theory. At that. who needs notes <laughs> uh please can you can you explain information theory and how it's an incredible tool for geologists so you want to just pick it up here then yeah specifically what what gets me about information theory is is my personal journey and, and infatuation with geology as a whole i always question the anomalies that always brought me back to the fundamentals and i just that's where i always kept myself and then when you explain this to me over the phone briefly i thought man this is so interesting and and i think fitting for our time right now so please well something you also said in that phone call was that you definitely want to be technically correct in everything that gets dis discussed on the pbe podcast so let me just say that um this this concept information theory was uh developed in bell labs in the late 1940s by a brilliant scientist named Claude Shannon. I'm not going to pretend to be an expert on information theory at that level at all. I'm more of it on a popular science sort of James Glyke level, you know, James Perfect. Glyke. Yeah. So let's just say that because if somebody then goes, man, that guy's view of information theory was a little bit strange. Well, you'll know what that means. So perfect. <laughs> okay. So this is basically the idea um, of using information theory in log evaluations. And so um, the log evaluations that we're looking at are essentially basin scale evaluation for unconventional reservoirs. And the chief insight that I had after working unconventional plays for a few years was that sweet spots or tier one properties, whatever you want to call them, they are not ubiquitous. They are unique in a resource play. Therefore, they are anomalous. So if you want to find the tier one properties or those anomalous sweet spots, you need to follow you need to look for anomalous properties in the logs and you can be that simple about it so it turns out that information theory is a is a beautiful way to look for these kinds of anomalies so you go from that insight then to what is information theory and information 
in information theory has a specific definition. Information is only present if I tell you something you don't already know or something you cannot predict. So the something you already know is kind of a trivial case. Hey, man, we're on the P. BE podcast. Okay, we know that. So I, I gave you some data there, but I didn't pass any information, right? Right. So the interesting thing is about prediction. So this little slide um, essentially breaks the data stream down into signal and noise. And we're looking at in the signal for um, surprising um, signal. So a surprising signal is represents substantive data whereas um, predictable signal represents superfluous data. Um, And the substantive data, the anomalies, are going to be our targets. So to simplify it, information changes the probability that a predicted event is correct. And I have two examples coming up in the next slide. So my binary example is based on Google search. And Troy, this was something that we talked about on the phone. If I type A into a Google search and it returns to me um, Amazon as the prediction for what I'm looking for, if that's correct, I can type M-A-Z-O-N and it doesn't change the... um, prediction that it first made with A. So the letter A was the only substantive data in that data stream. M-A-Z-O-N were superfluous. If then I'm looking for Apple or anything else that's not Amazon, and I type P for Apple, um, the P causes the algorithm to recognize new information. And it says, oh, I have to change my prediction. So that's how you know that um, information was conveyed and not just data because the prediction had to change. So does that make sense? Yep. Yeah. So the cross plot example below is a little more complicated. I don't want to get into too many details there, but you have to see this example because um, this is this is the way the log analysis is done. And basically, you're looking at the independent variable on the x-axis from left to right with increasing response and the dependent variable on the y-axis um, going up with increasing response. And we look for a predictable trend in the low response data. That predictable trend would tell you, I don't need to know the dependent variable if I know the independent variable. Mm. The, so because, And there is no information in these data here that are in blue along this trend prediction. The information content of the data increase the further they are away from that baseline. And the further away it is, the more likely it's to be anomalous. And that's what this uh, second part of the slide looks like if you just made a cross section across here, you would see the baseline in the low response data. Here's the trend prediction. And here are the anomalous data in red. The whole data cloud um, is the, the total data stream. And just the farther away from the baseline you get, the more likely you are to be looking at substantive data, which represent, or anomalous data, which represent the substantive information that you're looking for. And I have one more example for that. 
true example. So just for fun, here is just a graph of height of men on the x-axis increasing from left to right in feet and then weight in pounds going up on the y-axis. And the average population forms a trend um, that's here as with a positive correlation as you increase height men typically increase in weight but i've also plotted here the uh, height and weight uh, correlate uh, data from the broncos roster and you can see that these guys are anomalous right i mean if you saw this guy at like six and a half feet 300 pounds in your doorway you'd be surprised <laughs> and so that to me is like, if I'm trying to find f NFL football players, I can pretty much tell you that it's not going to be these guys. It's going to be these guys, but it's not a hundred percent. It's probabilistic because some of these guys, you know, the fast wide receivers, they don't look that different than some average people in the population. So that's information theory in a nutshell. Um, I love we it. Can, we can talk about application to geology, but yeah, like we said, we don't want this to be a, a webinar. I want it to be a conversation. So yeah. what, did that, what did that make yeah. you think? Skits, you want to run off the top of your head real quick? You want me to go with it? Oh, oh man, I'm, I'm stuck on the Broncos. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but uh no, I, I, I like the breakdown that you gave because I've heard of information theory before and the times that I've had it explained to me has not been done this well. So first and foremost, thank you for doing that because you cleared up a lot of the clouds that I had in my head in regards to information theory. But uh, yeah, I, I'm, I'm actually looking forward to seeing, you know, the applications of this and probabilistic modeling when we, you know, throw logs into it. Right. Yeah, yeah. So we can go into that next. Um, yeah. You know, basically in terms of data science, you know, big term um, people throw around on LinkedIn all the time. In my mind, this is just a form of dimensionality reduction. And the typical cross plot mm -hmm. dimensionality reduction is principal component yeah, analysis. PCA. Yeah. PCA. Yep. But I don't know. I'm a rocks for jocks guy. Maybe that's my problem, right? Wow. It's uh, so PCA makes no, it, it, it doesn't have a, an objective understanding to me. It right. becomes too mathematical. Exactly. If I show you, if I show you the baseline and we're calculating anomalies from that baseline, we say, look, this is a, a prediction that we expect. Um, and we uh, just look for these anomalies all the all the answers that come out of that make logical sense to a geologist anyway mm -hmm. so uh, you know good for the guys who can do pca but in the end they have to come back and try to say well this component is mostly this this component is partly this right. that doesn't work yeah. for me doesn't work for yeah. me. right so you're getting the, you're getting my juices going with all this yeah, i was get, but no but no i mean that's that was kind of a conversation I've had with, you know, fellow, uh, fellow technical people, uh, back in Midland is when you do PCA or any kind of information theory without validation from a geologist, right? Like you're, you're, you're finding these anomalous correlations that 
may or may not, you know, assist you in, you know, identifying that sweet spot. Right. Right. I mean, for we can just throw in geology here, for example, on this. What if height was shale volume and what if weight was average neutron neutron density porosity? Mm -hmm. If there is only porosity due to the shale volume, it will form this baseline trend. Right. Mm -hmm. If the log is only uh, reading porosity from the shales, it's going to be on this trend. So the shale volume absolutely predicts the neutron density porosity. Well, these are rocks we don't want. Right. The only porosity in these rocks is because of the shale volume, whereas any intergranular intercrystalline porosity is going to sit up here because it has the porosity from the shale volume plus the porosity, a new distribution, uh, uh, the porosity from the intergranular or intercrystalline porosity. So that's exactly how we apply this. This has been used forever in, um, calculation of water saturation right a picket plot is basically right. a porosity resistivity cross plot where you draw a baseline which represents the ro trend and the further the anomaly is away from that ro trend depending on what n you're using the higher you or lower you sorry, the lower you calculate water saturation. Mm -hmm. Again, I'm a geologist and I'm a petroleum geologist. I calculate hydrocarbon saturation. (laughs) Petrophysicists (laughs) can have their water saturation. Anyway, so. Well, the whole thing for me with information theory and what you're pointing out is this, again, it's this anomalous thing that we can find in the data. At the same time, fundamentals of it all are have anomalies, such as just the recently discovered Mars holding carrageen. So why is carrageen now a universal substance that is anomalous to our current model that we call the conventional oil petroleum model? That's anomalous. So we have anomalies in the fundamentals, and we have tools that allow us to find anomalies in massive data sets. It goes to the to to further my point is Google and Apple and all this technology stuff that people seem to have invested their futures in and they're waiting for Google or somebody to tell us some amazing discovery. It's not going to happen. It's never going to happen. It can't make those distinctions. All it can do is take all the information it has and optimize. But if we have fundamental problems underlying that optimization, what are we? It's not going to find anything of value. It's today is a time to address these anomalies to make discoveries. That's the point of information theory for me. Yeah. Well, I mean, what you said is really this word right here at the bottom of the slide. Surprise, right? I don't know the story about carriage on Mars, but if that was something that no one would have predicted, that's a hell of a surprise. (laughs) Yeah, it is. (laughs) So that is really the information content of that discovery is really high. And so the predictions, the paradigms that you build around those data, um, they have to change. They have to change. And that's the fundamental um, characteristic of information. So you have to change the way you're thinking about something. Love it. So, yeah, I mean, the beauty of this, uh, um, this simple um, dimensionality reduction is also 
um, that it's not a black box at all. So if I'm sitting with my manager, you want to go on to another, let's just yeah, see. Let's, we could drive yeah, right so into the- I, I'll show you uh, just some examples of the reservoir. And if you recall, the whole point of this was how to, how to move beyond completion parameters as predictors for EUR, how to add reservoir into that uh, prediction paradigm. The, the concept that I had on LinkedIn that got you interested, Troy, was that um, people who do decline curve EURs scrape their data from public data sources. And at the same time, they scrape completion data from those public data sources, then they try, then they do their decline curve analysis, come up with an EUR and try to predict EUR based on these scraped data. And the reason they do that is because it's a big data approach and you can do a fast analysis and you can do a high volume analysis, a lot of data, big data, high velocity, high volume is what I call it. But their correlations suck because they're not including reservoir, which is the founder of the feast, man. It's like if the reservoir is not there, you can complete the dickens out of it and you're not going to get any hydrocarbons. So oh, yeah. uh, the idea is to add reservoir. So that's what uh, I, I just wanted to bring that up because that was the whole point, at least in my mind, of uh, what we were going to be talking about today.